I'm uh, Jed Trot, one of the elders here at New Life. Um, I'm going to pray because uh, I need it. Lord, um, I just pray that you will uh, speak whatever you want to be spoken through me this morning. Um, and I pray your spirit will be on me and that you'll calm my spirit and uh, that you will bless your people. Amen. I turned uh, 35 last Sunday. No, no, that's it's a terrible birthday. 40, uh, 40 is looming, and then, then death. Um, My birthday always comes <clears throat> on the day before the anniversary of the 1973 Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that was the Supreme Court decision um, that made abortion legal in the United States. Um, so it's been 45 years that our nation has been living with legally sanctioned abortion. When I was younger, I would hear people argue that an unborn baby was not a human, that it was just a clump of cells, and that therefore abortion was not murder. Uh, I don't really hear that argument anymore. Instead, I hear various things along the lines of, the rights of the mother need to be weighed against the life of the fetus. You see, scientific advantages, uh, advances in neonatology or newborn care, um, medical imaging, uh, like ultrasounds and now the 3D ultrasounds, um, and even intrauterine uh, surgery, where they can go inside um, when a baby has a problem. Um, in its mother's womb, they can go in there with, I assume, very tiny surgical instruments and fix the baby up. Um, all of that stuff have, have made it very difficult to argue that a unborn baby is, is not a human. Um, so the argument has shifted from saying an unborn baby is not a life uh, to saying an unborn baby's life is just not an important human life. This is a rational point of view. Why should an unborn baby who can do nothing for itself or really do, can't do anything for anybody else, uh, why should it be allowed to disrupt anyone's life? Why should society bear the cost of this new human life? Throughout history, this sort of disregard for human life has been the norm. Uh, it's a normal thing. Uh, I don't know how many of you out there like to study history, but it's uh, in many ways a record of strong people going around and killing weak people if they get in their way or have things that they want. Um, so the strong uh, push the weak out to get what they value. And values is what this is all about. Uh, what do we value? I'm preaching today because God has given his church a unique message for our culture. It's a message that can't come from anywhere else. There's no other place for it to come from in our culture. It's not going to come from science. It's not going to come from philosophy. It needs to come from us. It's a message that flows from and is tied up in the story of Christ's incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, 
and his ascension. It's a message of love and hope. Only in Christ can we see that each life is precious. A gem to be treasured. Every person reflects God's glory in a special way. Each one of you. There is nothing given to us worth protecting and nurturing more than human life. God himself humbled himself to come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and endured the cross so that the full value of humanity which he created could be realized. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So let's take a look at what it means for a Christian to be pro-life. I don't need that part of my computer. Um, so first of all, I want to talk about this life. The life that Christ came so that we could have and have abundantly. What do we mean when we say life? Um, well, we don't mean all life, because life goes from little tiny baby blue-green algae to giant uh, blue whales. Um, and those are all created by God, and he says that they are good. Uh, but that's not the life that we're talking about this morning. Um, for instance, uh, Vivi, is she gone? Oh, I can tell the story about her. Um, <clears throat> she loves... Uh, animals um, a lot uh, abnormally so um, so uh, you know if, if there's any discussion in any way of an animal dying uh, she will clamp her hands over her ears scream and run out of the room um, so you know bunnies deer uh, it's you know she really likes to you know eat a lot of things so she's not a vegetarian so thank God for her appetite, because, um, you know, I don't know how we deal with having a six-year-old vegetarian in the house. Um, but, uh, and, and let me say that I thank God for that heart that she has, because that heart that she has is a reflection of uh, the image of God, in that she has great compassion. But God did not make bunny lives, as cute as they are, God did not make bunny lives in his image. Uh, bunny lives and baby deer lives are not as important to God as human lives. What we care about is human souls. Uh, what we care about is, is the life that God made. When it says in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created uh, people to be like himself. And he created them in an intimate way. The rest of creation he spoke into being. Um, but in Genesis 2 it says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. With his, I mean, God hands? You know, like, I don't know. We can't really know what God 
what that means. Uh, but that's what I imagine, is God, you know, scooped up the ground and molded man with his hands. And then it says, And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's a very intimate image. God is creating man with his hands, molding him the way he wants to be, and then he breathes life into him. And um, we don't see him creating the other life in that manner. And then what God does, and I didn't uh, write all the scripture down for this, but you can read it in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, is he tells man, okay, I've created you, I've made you in my image, now I want you to join me in my work. You know, you're going to take part in the work that I'm doing. First he creates the man, and then he creates the woman to help the man, and they're all working together in the work that God has, has set out in creating things in the universe. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of harmony and creation and creativity. Um, unfortunately, in the fall, uh, this is disrupted. So God's picture of how man is going to relate to him and relate to the universe um, is not able to come to fruition at that time. It has to wait. So that's the image of how God cares about human life. He cares about human life, that this is something he created. He created us specifically to be in communion with him. He desired us to be in communion with him. So what human lives do we care about? We care about every human life. The value of a human life is not about what that person can do. It's not about you know, their education, what they can achieve, or anything like that. I mean, first of all, God created the whole universe. There's no jobs that need done that he can't do. It's not, you know, as if, you know, when I'm uh, trying to figure out what part I need for the, the uh, dryer, and I have to go down to the shop and only, that's the only shop that still carries them. And it's not like if, if I wasn't around, there would be some cosmic gap in the universe to not get that job done. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States, if you're the guy who has the key that has to turn, you know, the, to make the, sure the nuclear missiles launch, or you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You're a doctor, a lawyer, a janitor, a nurse. Whatever you do has meaning in your relationship to God, but he doesn't need you to do it. Furthermore, and we can know that we don't care about uh, human lives because of what, what they're worth in themselves, because everything that we do is corrupted by sin. So even the most important acts that we do um, don't have righteousness in us doing them. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So, if our value is not in what we can do, where is it? It can only be in God's image. It can only be in the relationship that God created for man to have with him. That's what it means to value human life. It means... We see the wondrousness 
about what it means to be people who are pulled into relationship with God and created to have relationship with God. <clears throat> so ultimately, we care about tr the true life that Jesus made possible through his death and resurrection. Because if you're like me, um, you experience uh, being dead in yourself. You have experienced that. You've experienced what it means to feel like all of the things that you do are, are futile, and to feel like uh, your sin overwhelms you, to feel despair at your own efforts. But hopefully, you've also felt what it means to have that sin taken away, and the freedom to be pulled into relationship with God through Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. In Galatians 2.20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is what the Good Shepherd does when he comes to give life and life abundantly. He puts to death what uh, is in us, that is of this world and of the flesh and of sin, and he resurrects us in community with God. And the life that we still live here on earth, we live in faith in God. And so that is the final step in valuing life. So we see human life, we see that it's valuable because it's created in God, God's image, and as Christians, as followers of uh, God, we are renewed in that life. And we experience that uh, communion with God. And so we should desire, as a final step, to see others also brought into community with God. And if we don't, then we have to ask ourselves if we really feel that. So that's life. That's the life that God created and the meaning of it. So what does it mean to be pro? Pro means for. Um, so, you know, some people are uh, pro-recycling. Um, but I have never heard of anybody having a recycling party. Uh, now, some people are pro-eagles. Um, who's going to a Super Bowl party? So the second kind of pro, when you're pro-Eagles, I mean, this is the kind of pro where uh, people come to work late, um, they can't speak on Monday morning, uh, you know, they rearrange their life, so they make sacrifices, so they make sure that they can see all the games. Uh, and that is the kind of pro that we need to be for life. Because God created that life. He made it in his image. There is nothing we should be more pro than human life. So, practically, what does it look like to be pro-life? Well, so, 
If we see that every life is precious to God, regardless of the status of that life in our culture, then we know that to love our fellow man is to love God. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, this is at the judgment of the world, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will all answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I've read this passage wrong my whole life until this week. Um, because I put some qualifiers in it that aren't there. I always read it as you take care of even the least, and therefore you cared for me. But there is no even in this passage. Uh, it's, it, what I mean is God's not saying, oh, you, you, know, you didn't forget the final tranche of people who most people forget about and you know, are, are worthless, basically, but you still took care of them anyway, so that's great. It's not what he's saying in this passage. He's saying you take, took care of the least with no qualifier. Like, that's, that's the job that I want you to do. When you love the least, you love me. So, I mean, this is why we care about abortion in this church. And this is why anyone who follows Christ should care. Because an unborn child is the least. They're defenseless, uh, without any ability to advocate for themselves, and unseen. Unfortunately, we live in a society that doesn't have a recognition of this. Um, instead of having a comprehensive ethic of life, I think we live in a, a culture that has a comprehensive ethic of death. Uh, and we cannot take action effectively to be an instrument of healing in our culture if we do not uh, physical healing in our culture, if we do not take act uh, action to be an instrument of spiritual healing in our culture. 
And I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he says he comes to bring life and life abundantly. Um, the thief, and you can say the thief is, is Satan, comes to kill and destroy. So he just wants to see everything that God has ordained uh, foiled. He wants to see the image of God um, corrupted. Perverse, uh, he wants to see perversity. And he lies to us. Now the good shepherd comes to lay down his life for the sheep so that the sheep may live and live abundantly. Now, there's also a hired hand in this story. Who's the hired hand? I don't know. It's, it's a parable, so we can't say it definitively. But we are like the hired hand if we say that we serve Christ, but we don't do anything to care for his sheep. Because the hired hand is worse than useless. He says he's going to do the job. He says, you know, he's the hired hand. He's not a shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep, so he sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. If he didn't take the job on, maybe the shepherd would have stayed and taken care of the sheep. So, we need to be on the Good Shepherd's team. The Good Shepherd who came to bring us life and life abundantly. Being pro-life means that we stand against whatever injustice, oppression, or sin there is that prevents the fulfillment of human life. The joining together of man with Christ and God that Christ made possible through his sacrifice. Fulfillment means being reconciled and joining the God of the universe and glorifying God with our lives in whatever way God has planned for us and in whatever place God has put us. I mean, that's, and that's been a struggle for me in my life. You know, sometimes you argue with God and say, hey, I think you maybe put me in the wrong place and, and uh, this is not the right job for me. Like, maybe I don't think I should be up here right now. Um, but trust God, um, because you know His Spirit works out in your life in ways that you can't imagine. Um, but this is foolishness to the world around us. Our culture is in the grip of a mindset that devalues life. I'm just going to give some examples. You can disagree with me on these examples, but these are examples that, to me, uh, exemplify this. You see... Um, despair and desperation in our political climate. Uh, there's a sort of unbridled anger and a willingness to try anything, you know, if it'll, you know, make some change and help me and mine. Um, you see uh, addiction working as a slow suicide in people's lives where uh, they turn for hope to something. Um, and it slowly occludes everything that life is really about and steals all their joy. I mean, you see, you see this in the opiate crisis in the United States. Um, but, you know, you can also see it in things like uh, computer games. Um, just whatever it is, replacement of true life with something that blocks out true life. You see this in self-satisfied, materialistic hedonism. 
Now, uh, Jose's going to get mad at me for using big words here. Um, so, I just mean, you know, making your life about fulfilling the American dream. Um, I'm going to get a house in the suburbs and have a couple cars, maybe one and a half kids, and make sure that nobody can bother me. I'm going to build uh, my fortress of solitude. That's not, that's not the life that Christ has for us. Uh, you also see it, you know, and this has been a lot in the news lately, treating others as a tool for sexual gratification. Um, you know, you see this in uh, use of pornography. You also see it in recent revelations that show the pervasiveness, even among those who proclaim to respect women, of using their position in society and power to exploit women. Subjectification of others is not respecting life. It's not respecting the image of God in each other. I see it in mass incarceration, callously locking people away for large chunks of their life uh, for relatively meaningless things. Um, it's not, it's not pro-life. That's not letting people live out the image of God in themselves or encouraging it. And as pointed, was pointed out earlier this morning in Sunday school class, you see this also in euthanasia, you know, giving up on life, saying, well, we had, this life was a good life for 73 years, but, you know, we've decided now it's not a good life anymore as an individual or as a society, and so we're going to decide to put an end to it. All of these things, to me, reflect a culture that is desperately sick. And that's good news for us, because a desperately sick culture desperately needs the gospel. But to bring it back, we especially care about abortion among these things. Because all the things I've talked about are an insult to the image of God and man. These things that we do to ourselves and things that we do to others. But I believe that abortion is the most wicked. Murdering a child is a deep idolatry. It is putting faith in death as a solution to our problems as opposed to God. It is to turn your back on God and destroy his most precious creation at its most vulnerable point as a sacrifice to death. It is an act of worship to death. In 2 Chronicles 33, uh, we read about a king of Judah named Manasseh. And I think his story is very instructive. He was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished, he also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists, he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Now, I believe that, it's, it doesn't say this in the passage, but you know, this 
when people turn away to God, from God, it does make God angry. But I think it also makes him very sad. Manasseh makes himself an enemy of God in a parallel, two parallel ways. Um, God had allowed the Israelites to build a temple to him. Now, when you look at this through a Hebrew point of view, their thinking was God needs a temple and we're going to build it for him. But when you look at this through uh, our point of view, God did not need a temple. I mean, he, it wasn't like he didn't exist before they, he had a temple, you know. And he's not crying out, build me a temple, build me a temple. David desires very much to build him a temple. And God says, you're not allowed to build me a temple. He says, your son will build me a temple. So finally, he lets Solomon build him a temple. And he says, you know, as long as you honor this temple and worship my name and follow me and depend on me, you know, I'll be faithful to you. It's a big risk for God to let humans build him a temple because you've met humans. Faithfulness, you know, to what's good and right is not, it's not a very consistent human trait. But God does it anyway because he loves his people and he honors their desire to honor him even though, you know, it's somewhat misguided in some ways, he honors that. Manasseh, you know, and there's a lot of other kings of Judah who do crazy things uh, and bad things, and they build bales and Asherah poles and altars. But what Manasseh does specifically that is detestable is he goes into that house that God let his people build for him, and he builds altars to other gods. Now, these other kings of Judah, they let the temple fall into disrepair. They didn't collect the taxes that were supposed to keep it up. They didn't feed the Levites. And all of that's bad. But Manasseh attacks God. He says, you know, this temple that you let your people build uh, to honor you and you made part of your covenant with your people, I want to build altars to other gods in there. And I'm saying that because this is the same king of Judah that sacrifices his own children to other gods. So, this is someone who is dedicated to dishonoring God. He aggressively dishonors God by destroying God's image in his children, in their most vulnerable state, children that are a gift from God to him. And he also, in parallel to that, desecrates God's temple. So this is why I believe that Taking him innocent life, um, it's an insult to God. So there's one other thing that I want to talk about here. And I know this is hard to talk about, but I, I think it's important to understand who we are as a people, as a culture. Because we need to talk about who do we sacrifice. I mean, we talk about abortion, and I think that uh, most people imagine surgery or a generic baby or whatever. But the truth of the matter is there are certain people who are much more likely to get aborted than other people. If you are poor, below the federal poverty line, you are five times more likely to be aborted 
than if you are someone who is born to parents 200% above the poverty line. We don't value the poor in our society. Uh, minorities. Um, a black child is five, four times more likely to be aborted than a white child. A uh, Latino child is three times more likely to be aborted. 90% um, of children with Down syndrome are aborted. This is, uh, this is a deep generational sin in our culture. We celebrate the can-do pioneer spirit of America. Uh, and there are things to be celebrated about that. But with that came an idea that you know, if you're not, not able to make your way in this world, and you're not able to push your way through difficulties, um, you don't belong here. We don't want you in our society. You are a less important, less valuable life. And that's something we need to repent of. Something that, something that I need to repent of, I mean... I was born into a family uh, where efficiency and being able to do things are a very high value. Um, and efficiency is not a kingdom value. I'm just going to say that. It's not a kingdom value. You can't find efficiency in the Gospels. Um, and God is uh, hilariously or frustratingly inefficient, depending on how you look at it. Um, just, you know, you can read the Old Testament. There's people wandering around for years on years on years, never getting to the place they're going. Um, you know, it's not, about, it's not about getting things done. That's not what God values, but it's what our culture values. Um, and we call, you know, we value getting ours. We value me and mine. And so those who are unable to keep up or prevented from keeping up, we leave by the wayside. So I don't want to leave here this morning without talking about what we can do, because I know a lot of this can be oppressing. It can be depressing, and it's, you know, it's what we call heavy. But talking about heavy for a second, the root word of, of, uh, of glory also in Hebrew is related to heaviness. So this is a heavy subject, and there's nothing I can do about that. But in dealing with it, there is fantastic potential glory. So what can we do? First of all, we need to repent. Um, we need to repent of indifference. Some of the attitudes that I talked before about... Um, you know, closing ourselves off from the difficulties that we see around us. From being like, uh, you know, the priests that go on the other side of the road in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not enough for us to not participate in abortion ourselves and call ourselves righteous. It's not enough. We have to actively 
share God's love. And if you're sitting here this morning and your heart is heavy because in some way you've participated in, a, in, in an abortion, there is forgiveness through repentance, which goes much deeper than the stain of your sin. Christ came to bear the weight of your sin specifically. All you have to do is give it to him. Give your pain, your shame, and your regret to him. He can bear it. And he wants to do that for you. If you keep holding on to the weight of your sin, it will crush you. But there's no reason for that to happen. You can let Christ's suffering free you. And if that's you, please find somebody up here at the end of this uh, service to pray with. Don't leave with that burden on your shoulders today. So what else can we do? And I think this is important. We need to live Christ's love for life. Enjoy and suffering live real life. Living real life that is loving real people and dealing with real people's problems and them dealing with your real problems, that is an affirmation of life. That is a sacrifice to God. It's a worship to God. And it's what we were created to do, to live in community with each other and in community with God. That is the sort of thing that affirms God's love for life and is a testimony to the culture we live in. Also, we can advocate shamelessly. So I come from a family in which my dad had, you know, has gone to um, prison a number of times for um, protesting uh, peacefully outside of um, abortion clinics. Um, And I think what he did was good. Um, I don't think that that's where we're at, the place we're at right now. What I want is everyone to know that Every child has a home with a follower of Christ if they need one. And honestly, I think that's true. But we need to proclaim that in big ways and little ways. And I know some of you, you know, younger people, um, kids or teenagers, you are going to run into people who have, um, are struggling you know, who have an unplanned pregnancy, and they don't know what to do. Um, And I think that one thing that you can do to help them, to help their unborn child, and to glorify God, is tell them, I know people who will take your child. If you spare your child's life, I know people who will take your child on whatever terms you want. Because you do. You know people in this church who will do that. If you run into a uh, situation like that, come to the elders of this church. We will find a home for that child. I guarantee it.
The final thing that we need to do and that we can do, I know I don't do enough, is pray. Because this is not getting fixed through our efforts. We don't have enough. We just, we really don't have enough. Hearts need to be changed. A culture needs to be transformed. Repentance needs to happen. And only God can make that happen. Only God can face this down. Only God has done what is necessary to redeem. So we need to pray. We need to pray. So let's do that now.